Healthy Options, and I'm here with my guest, Jill Colby, and uh, we're going to be uh, talking about hospice services, Waldo County Hospice and Home Care, and uh, our guest, Jill uh, Colby, is the Director of Home Care Services at Waldo County Home Health and Hospice. She is also on the Board of Directors for Hospice Volunteers of Waldo County, and for the past 18 years, she's worked in hospice most of the time in direct patient care. And uh, she received her Bachelor of Science in Nursing from Rutgers University, her Master's in Nursing from William Patterson University, and she's been a registered nurse since 1969. She's also a certified hospice and palliative nurse and holds a certification in advanced oncology. And in 2004, she began working with Waldo County Home Health and Hospice in Belfast. It's a Medicare certified agency providing both in-home health care and hospice services. Jill's passion is uh, end-of-life care and pain management. And today on this edition of the Healthy Options Program, we'll be discussing how hospice can help, can help individuals, friends, family members cope with times of such momentous transition. So welcome to Healthy Options, Jill. Well, thank you so Colby. much, Rhonda. I appreciate the, the ability to be here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's wonderful to have you, and uh, it's such a, a, a timely topic. It, it, it never goes out of style. No, <laughs> Tell me a little bit about uh, the work that, that the agency does. I know you do home care, but also hospice, and we can uh, talk a little bit about uh, the differences and, and that kind of thing. Sure. Because we're a Medicare-certified agency, our home care division requires that we have a skill in order to be go into the home. We get a physician's order, and we work a lot with rehabilitation, with getting people better on a short-term basis. We provide nursing, physical therapy, occupational therapy, home health aids, speech, nutrition, dietary, uh, but all with the aim of getting the person back to an independent state so that they can live independently again. Uh, sometimes, of course, we know as patients age or they get diseases that don't allow this, um, that, that is unrealistic. And so I'm really privileged to be able to be in charge of both a home care and a hospice because we know that hospice care, uh, which we really want to talk about today, uh, is the kind of care that more and more people are seeking, although a lot of people don't know about it. And hospice care really is that kind of care for end of life, but it's care n- not in quantity of days, but for quality of days. And that's so important to me. Um, that's really how I got started. Um, I think people usually get started in hospice thinking, I want to take care of everyone else who's going to die. I'm the only one that's not never going to die. So I think we're kind of a weird bunch that get into hospice. Um, but I think part of it is we think, I want to take care of people the way I would want to be taken care of if my days were numbered. So that's well. That that's exactly the kind of thing uh, hospice possibly isn't for everyone. So how how did you come to have a passion for uh, for know, that? And maybe if you could tell us a little bit about what hospice offers. What is hospice? Um, I got into hospice because I was a home care nurse, and I saw so many people who were actually dying but didn't know it because the big conspiracy took place in the '70s, where doctors wouldn't tell people they were dying, um, wouldn't admit it. Doctors saw it as a failure of of modern medicine if they couldn't get someone better. And I would go into people's homes and they would look at me with these big eyes and say, I don't understand it. I'm doing everything the doctor says. I go to bed each night. I try to get a good night's sleep. And I wake up in the morning feeling worse than I did the day before. And they were taking all this guilt on, thinking it was something that they were doing. 
I knew their history, but I wasn't allowed to talk to them about it. It felt very dishonest to me. Hmm. Um, I was never afraid, really, of dying, and I didn't understand why so many people would never broach the topic. I mean, years ago, people lived and died in their homes, and then we took dying out of the home and brought it into the hospital, and that's when people began to be frightened of death because they didn't see it. Doctors rarely saw it. Some doctors still don't see it. They go in the room, they write their orders, they leave the room, and the nurse is left or the family's left with the patient who actually is dying, and the doctor never really sees the face of what dying looks like. And the fear of the unknown is usually fear of the known. So uh, I got into that because I did see that happening, and because people weren't told they were dying, they couldn't take advantage of what time they had left, nor were they given the medical care that that really would keep them comfortable, because you wouldn't do certain things to a person, give them huge doses of opioids like morphine, if you thought that they were going to get up and, and be well tomorrow, you didn't want to take that chance. So people died in lots of pain. Mm -hmm. I knew that was nothing that I wanted to ever happen to me. So I began to really look into hospice and that's when I became certified and began um, really thinking about hospice with a passion. So what we can do as an agency or with a hospice uh, care is that we can go into people's homes when doctors have certified that the patient has a six-month or less prognosis without any aggressive medical treatment, and we can help them. We teach them what to do to make their lives better. The nurses are all very adept at pain management. We interface with the physician or the nurse practitioner and make sure that we are visiting as often as we need to make sure that that patient is getting the care that they need. We support the family. We send home health aides out to help with things like bathing, simple housekeeping. We send physical therapists out not to rehabilitate patients but to keep them safe and maybe to give them enough mobility so that they can still get down to the co-op and, and get mm -hmm. their favorite foods. Um, we send physical uh, speech therapists and occupational therapists. We have a social worker who really helps keep families together and intact. And we have a spiritual care coordinator who deals with the spiritual side of, of hospice. One of the most exciting things about hospice is that we work as a team. Most of healthcare is very broken up into pieces. When it comes to hospice, we are very democratic. <laughs> our hospice team, called our IDT, meets every two weeks. We have a hospice director, Dr. Deb Peabody, is our hospice director. She's hospice and palliative certified. But she is no more important on the team than the spiritual care coordinator or the social worker or the nurse um, or the patient, for that matter. Our patients or their families are welcome at these meetings as well. It's really by a team approach that we take care of people. And I would say that was probably one of the hallmark things that hospice developed. And I have to give credit where credit isn't often given. Now, I certainly don't give them enough credit, but the United States government was <laughs> the one that really started the hospice Medicare benefit. So when Medicare was developed, it was shortly after that in the early 80s that the legislature developed the hospice Medicare benefit. I'm not positive they did it for an altruistic reason. I think they, part of their reasoning was economic, which is not a bad thing because mm -hmm. I think we can do two things at once. We know we're in a health care financial crisis, uh, but there's no reason that we can't give better care for less. We know that the majority of the health care dollars spent in the United States is done in the last few weeks of life and how ridiculous that is when we can give much better care with less aggressive treatment hmm. and make patients more comfortable. 
Yeah, so I know that uh, you've also included uh, acupuncture and, and and all sorts of things to help give people comfort. Now, you mentioned something about helping going in and tell, helping people with what to do. What, what does that mean? I mean, do you have... I, I'm remembering a situation, a, a personal situation with hospice where there was a whole team that came to our house. Right. And we had a conversation, is, is, but... but how do you that, tell some? That, that can certainly happen, yeah. especially if a, if a family is not sure of what's going on or what they need. Mm-hmm. We have many family meetings. Sometimes that means the f- patient says, uh, you know, I do want to go to the co-op and I want to get my, my great bacon that they have there. <laughs> and everyone else is saying, that, no, mom, you, you can't disease. have You can't have bacon. It's got too much salt. So then we as a team sit down and say, look, you know, she doesn't have all that many days left. What's the worst thing that's going to happen if she has her bacon? You know, and she's going to be happy. <laughs> So those <laughs> right. are the kinds of things we try and negotiate. You know, right. is the amount of bacon she's going to eat make her more uncomfortable? Well, maybe it is. So then maybe it's time for the nurse to say, "Well, we can increase your diuretic mm-hmm. temporarily, get rid of the salt, and so you can have your bacon and eat it too, <laughs> and still have fun." In the home right. care benefit, it's very specific that the patient needs yes. to be homebound. We don't have that requirement in hospice benefit. Our, our whole meaning is to get the patient to do as much as they can do and what they want to do. Mm-hmm. We've had um, many, many experiences. We had a woman, a young woman, out in, I think it was Knox or Brooks, and she had two young children. And one of, we always ask, is there something that you haven't accomplished that you want to do that we can help you with? What she wanted to, to do is she wanted to see the bay. She had always lived on the coast, and she wanted to see the bay before she died. Uh, she knew she was dying, and because she knew she was dying and had limited time, we were able to help her with that. We arranged through Waldo County Transportation to get her a van where she could lie down. We medicated her enough so that the ride was comfortable, and she and her children came, and she got to see the bay. Hospice Volunteers was uh, working right along with our hospice to do that, and it was something that initially her doctor said she would never be able to do. Mm-hmm. Well, those are fighting words for us when people tell us that it's something that we can't do. We double up our efforts and make sure that we can do it. So in, in, in terms of, of end-of-life issues, I imagine that there would be a, 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 a bit of counseling that would be involved because, as you said, we're so removed from this and there's so much fear of, of the unknown. How would you approach this right away, coming in? We do have counseling. That's a requirement Mm -hmm. uh, to be a a Medicare provider. Uh, Margie Spencer-Smith, our social worker, would probably be the first one that would go in and begin to counsel. But we all overlap in our jobs, and that's one of the most interesting parts. No one feels that they own their job. So I, as a nurse, might do some counseling as well. I might do some spiritual work. Um, certainly medical part and just as our social worker very often will do medical she'll advocate for in- improved pain management but Margie probably would be the leader uh, for the counseling part we would go in and and speak with her and she could go in and speak with families and talk to them about it interestingly enough it's hardly ever the patient that's the problem <laughs> that was <laughs> my next question the family patients usually come to hospice they know it intuitively they know their bodies they know they hurt they know really many people are are almost thrilled when we the doctor says I think it's time that you consider no more aggressive treatment it's time now for comfort treatment patients are often thrilled because they fought and they really felt 
physically so poorly that now it's time for them to be get some love and, and have people put their arms around them and they can stop being strong for everybody else. But families, that's another problem. It's hard to let go. It is hard to let go. And in Western society, one of the ways that we show our love, and, and I come from New Jersey where we had a lot of Italians and, and Jewish families, and if they couldn't feed their, their loved ones, I mean, there was nothing else meaningful in this world. <laughs> so we spent lots of time explaining how dying patients really don't have the need for food, that their bodies are not repairing themselves. Right. Food is meant for cellular growth, and when you're dying, you don't need that. But when you have spent your whole cultural life as that's the way that you show love, mm-hmm. that's very difficult. So we did lots of counseling when it came to you, giving them other ways to show love. You know, using washcloths to put cool cloths on people's heads and bringing them maybe just some tea or some warm water. Uh, or not being offended if the last food they wanted to eat was some lasagna, but they really couldn't swallow it. So it's okay to chew it and spit it out. Mm. and get the feeling or at least that memory of what that lasagna Mm. dinner meant, you Mm. know, on Christmas or whatever. It's just, it just feels that we get reduced to total authenticity at at that moment. This is the truth, life, death, love, not love, (laughs) whatever. I would imagine that some uh, issues might come up, you know, the the siblings, the children, the daughter, the son, everyone's going, you know, needing some sort of, um, of help in making the transition, but it is the, the nuts and bolts. There's no pretending. That's right. And that's what brought me to hospice, the no pretending. So when someone told me in the morning, I feel lousier than I did the night before, I can now say to them, yeah, dying can be like crap because you don't feel well. And let's see what we can do to make this better. Uh, when you talk about families, um, that's always the, the uh, most difficult part. We sit at IDT meetings and someone will say, well, this brother feels like this. And we say, well, this sister feels like this. And we always joke in, in hospice that it's always the sibling from California. I'm sure in California <laughs> they say it's the sibling from Maine. That, that that's right. Trouble. We are streaming all over the world. <laughs> right. it's, the, it's the sibling in Madagascar but that really gets true. you. It's often true because the people who are not, not there. Here, don't remember mom or they remember mom the way she was not the way she is now they don't see the horrors of what she's been going through and how the the medication she's taking to hopefully make this disease better is not working and making her quality of life worse than not taking the medication Um, heart disease is is an amazing example because we've got so many wonderful medications to keep people's hearts pumping better and better but heart medication has many side effects and when you're not doing as much as you usually had you were doing before you probably don't need as much medication but we forget to back off on some of that so hospice comes into these people who have been on all these medications and not feeling so great but it was keeping them going but now they're quiet they're sitting more during the day maybe reading more and we say okay you can stop this medication why don't you stop this one and all of a sudden they go wow i feel great maybe i don't need to be on hospice right. but in reality they they are still dying but we've just taken them off some of these really strong medications that have had serious side effects but family members don't always see that as an as an easy choice so we right. have arguments and we have 
difficulties. So every step is is a, not a negotiation necessarily, but maybe, but more of a of a learning. Absolutely. And it's it's a level. What I, I d- discovered too, when you're dealing with someone who has a chronic condition, you get used to different plateaus. Mm-hmm. As a caregiver, if you're the husband, the wife, the child, you know partner, whatever, whatever the, uh, the, the relationship is. And when you get used to that plateau of, let's say, less function, and then something shifts, you have to re- regroup again. And I would imagine that that's where, uh, if one is in hospice, that's where that, the whole team can kind of hold the caregiver. Absolutely. Yeah, people do get used to new normals. Uh, when right. I went with my father-in-law, who, who died many years ago, we went to the uh, pulmonary physician. Uh, he had a terrible cough and was bringing up blood. He had lung cancer, and we didn't know it at the time. But we're, we're getting suspected. down and dirty around here. Yeah. yeah right. Okay. But uh, the, the doctor <laughs> asked, I kind of sat in the background, and the doctor said, uh, do you have a cough? And both he and my mother-in-law said no. <laughs> And I just stood there with my mouth hanging open. I said, oh, yeah, you do. You have a constant cough. And they were amazed because they were just became part of their, their normal life. So that does happen. So sometimes as a team, we reacquaint people with how things really are as opposed to what they've gotten used to. Uh, this is Healthy Options. This is WERU, and we're listening. Uh, you're listening to WERU, and we're talking with Jill Colby, Director of Home Care Services at Waldo County Home Health and Hospice. And today's to- topic is hospice and end of life issues and decisions that are faced um, all around the world. This is real life everywhere, everywhere. Yes. So um, let's start at the beginning. So you you. Do have physicians who are on staff as well? Do they do the home part of the home delivery? Now, you're. Th- I want to also differentiate between the kind of hospice work that you do and then hospice volunteers because they're two different ideas: medical versus right. not. But um, in terms of getting into the program, do you have you have to go through a physician, or is yes, there? Yes, you do. You're not self-referred in this case. No. Now, hospice volunteers is in Maine an independent organization. Maine is probably one of the few states that I'm aware of that have independent hospice volunteers. Part of the Medicare hospice program, by the way, the Medicare program is considered the gold standard for all hospice programs, and they do mandate that we use volunteers. Five percent of our patient care hours must be volunteer hours. So for most hospices across the United States, the volunteer coordinator would actually be on the staff of my home care and hospice. Uh, In Maine, it doesn't always work that way. So they're an independent group. We contract with them to provide the hospice volunteer hours we need. And they are under strict scrutiny as well as we are from the government to provide proper training for their volunteers, uh, background checks, all the things that the government mandates, they do. Mm-hmm. Um, but they get no funding from the government as opposed to as a medical agency, we do get funding mm-hmm. uh, from Medicare mostly, but we do mm-hmm. private agencies, self-pay, and of course charity or free care. Um, so the hospice benefit um, from the 1980s hasn't changed a whole lot. There are four levels of care that are given, a home care benefit, Um, an inpatient benefit when we can't keep someone comfortable at home, we put them into a hospital or inpatient facility for short amounts of time to get their symptoms under control. We have a respite care benefit, which consists of five days where the family can get some rest. We put a patient into either a nursing home or an inpatient hospice, or in our case, Waldo County General Hospital, where we have two beautiful hospice beds. 
um, and also something called continuous care, which was designed for emergency situations that really uh, where we would be in at least 12 hours a day as a team to help care for the patient. But the mm-hmm. vast majority of the care is the home care benefit. And that takes care of people in their residence. Their residence can be a nursing home. It can be their their own home or an assisted living. So there's many places that their residence can be. Um, under this Medicare hospice benefit, a physician of medicine has to certify that the patient has six months or less to live for the disease that they're giving and uh, with no aggressive treatment. When hospice first started, this was almost always cancer. Now, (laughs) cancer accounts for only about 40% of our diseases. Heart disease is a big one. Dementia or failure to thrive is another one. We do liver disease, um, just about any Mm -hmm. disease, lung disease, just about anything Mm -hmm. you can think of, neurological, um, uh, but they account for for less um, than, than cancer still. Once the doctor certifies, that's that doctor who's certified, there has to actually be two doctors. Um, it has to be a primary doctor. So if a patient's going to their regular doctor for care and that doctor feels the patient's hospice appropriate, they may call us and say, I think it's time for hospice. We bring the history to our medical director. The medical director then has to concur with that mm-hmm. primary care physician that the patient is indeed ready. So you, I know you have uh, amazing nurses. On I've worked with some of them right right on the on the uh, on site, as mm-hmm. it were, doing amazing work every day. Um, and then they're really direct care. They yes. really see what's happening. And so if someone's in more pain or needs a different shift in the plan, that nurse needs to then go back to a doctor or what's in how much how much room do, does an initiative does the the on-site caregiver you know medical person have the nurse actually has quite a bit of autonomy in in hospice much more than in home care we start out by doing a lot more standing orders so we anticipate needs and so we already write into the original orders that we have the doctor sign uh, parameters of treatments so that we don't have to wait to get the, you know, the, the orders right there. So right. the nurse has quite a bit of leeway as far as Good. titrating orders. We also put emergency kits into patients' homes uh, so that at 2 o'clock in the morning, we have a nurse on call 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. So that 2 o'clock call comes in, the nurse doesn't have to bother the doctor at that point or worry that there's not medication in the house. She can simply say, go to the box that we have given you, open it up, and we go through we have different kinds of medications in that box uh, of different ways that we could treat you until the morning when we can make a, a more definitive mm-hmm. you know, answer. Mm-hmm. Um, so the nurses do have quite a bit of, of leeway, but we also have the physicians on call for us mm-hmm. 24 hours a day. And our hospice medical director is um, unendingly supportive um, mm-hmm. as far as we put our heads together and figure out what needs to be done. So. So you know what? How how um? Give me a a a, a case. So somebody comes in. At the, the, you're saying that the patients are usually ex- more accepting than the family. Yeah, is, because at they're this the point. ones that are feeling sick. So oh, uh, they know. They know, and right. And death, as as you feel worse and worse, death doesn't look so bad anymore. <laughs> so mm, I imagine that's one of the reasons. I mean, right. my own father was um, diabetic and his heart was not doing so well. And toward the end, he had lost a leg to, to diabetes. 
he kept fighting, 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 and he got a prosthetic leg at age 82, which was amazing, And but he was tired. And, mm-hmm. But my father was old stock Polish and didn't complain, and he just kept going. And then one day they said, well, we, Joe, we think you're going to need some dialysis. And he looked at me and he said, dialysis? I've had enough. I don't want dialysis. Mm-hmm. So I said, well, then you know, I think we, we could probably be thinking about hospice at this point. And he said, yeah. And so when finally we, we got to that point, he just smiled. He, was, he just said, oh, thank goodness. But then an interesting ha- thing happened when I actually went home to his house and I said, we're going to put you on hospice. He started to cry. Never has really seen my father cry. And he just kept saying to me, you promised me this wouldn't happen. And I was so confused because I didn't understand what his confusion was. When we finally got it straightened out, he thought I was putting him in a nursing home. He thought oh. hospice was a place, oh. which a lot of people do tend to think that. Oh. Instead of hospice being a philosophy of care, he thought it was a place that you went, and in his mind it was a nursing home. So he had moved from New York to New Jersey, and he had his own little Cape Cod house in New Jersey that he thought was his castle, and he wanted to definitely die there. He hadn't been born in a hospital. He was born at home, mm-hmm. and he said, I definitely want to die at home. When we got that straightened out, he just said, wonderful. Have everybody come visit, say goodbye, and I hadn't seen him that happy. It's in, so in interesting. Years. You know, um, uh, so many ways to go here, uh, but I am remembering a story of someone going into hospice at, and having all of this attention and love, and then getting well and not oh, dying. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry, yeah. you, we have to take you out of hospice now because you're, you know, you're living. You can still have all this love, but. Not here. Not this way. (laughs) The nurse can't come anymore. That is true. Um, (laughs) When we have to take someone off hospice, and and we do that if they're not actively dying anymore. (laughs) I'm sorry you're not. That's what the Medicare (laughs) benefit says. We say we have good news and bad news. And the good news is you've done much better than we would have thought you're coming off hospice. And the bad Mm -hmm. news is you're coming off hospice. And, And it's true because when we come in with a team, we have a team of love that comes in and they get used to that. Where that happens most commonly is not with cancer, but with sometimes dementia. Hmm. And a lot of times we will visit people with dementia who are not getting ultimate care. And so we may put them on hospice with what we call a failure to thrive, but it really isn't a medical failure to thrive. It's um, a failure to thrive because they're not getting proper care. So when we come in with so much and it's not, and I, I don't say that pejoratively to say that the family or someone wasn't giving them the care. They may not have been able to. We have people mm-hmm. in their 90s who are living together. Two people are ill. Well, the one person can't possibly be giving the care of the other person. That would be mm-hmm. what we would consider good quality of care. Mm-hmm. We come in with a team of people, and yes, this person now thrives. So, um, so there, it's not quite their time yet, and uh, right. so, so that does happen at times. Um, when I talk about taking people off hospice, the hospice Medicare benefit is in benefit periods. In the old days when hospice first came on, we broke these benefit periods down into four periods, and at the end of the fourth period, if you were taken off, you could never access the benefit oh again. Oh, my. That's definitely been changed. We now put a person on for three months, then we reevaluate, put them on for another three months if they're still progressing and looking like they're dying. Then we do unlimited amounts of 60-day periods. So they can be on hospice forever. They can come off hospice mm-hmm. if at one point they realize they really do want more aggressive treatment. They can come right off, go right back on. 
So this is the Medicare benefit I'm describing, but uh, most people have to be either 65 or have been disabled to be on that. Most private insurance companies mimic their benefit under mm-hmm. the hospice Medicare benefit. Right, because there are people who aren't qual- yeah, yeah, there are young people yes, who absolutely. need to do this. Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Maine actually has been wonderful with hospice. They actually are one of the few private insurance companies that will allow some curative treatment even after a patient has signed on to the hospice benefit. Uh, and, and that's important. That's really important. It really is because the, the face of cancer particularly has changed from one of sure death to much more of a chronic disease. Chronic condition. Chronic condition. And and much of what we used to think was curative is now palliative. So people may get radiation therapy or chemotherapy to shrink tumors so that the symptoms aren't so bad. doesn't mean you're still not dying of the disease, but you may have more time now and certainly much more pleasant time. Mm. So... And who's going to pay for that? You know, that those are all questions uh, that we have to ask. Well, there's certainly this idea of who really knows when someone's going to die. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we discuss this as if, mm-hmm. you know, you, I mean, there's certainly clinical factors um, on, on that left brain, as, as I would call it, the subjective scale. But really, we don't know no, we when don't. someone's dying when someone's not dying well, you know you, know, you i'm sorry you only have two years well that was 10 years ago you know right, that, that kind right. of thing that people we're much better when it gets close <laughs> yes <laughs> that's right but, uh, next week right because I, I remember I, I know somebody the patients i've seen it was like there's no question this person is going to be here mm-hmm. for at least two weeks mm-hmm. you you kind of get to know by feeling a pulse or, mm-hmm. or taking a look. Yeah. But we're careful. Uh, yeah. Us older hospice nurses are really careful not to give time frames because, right. you know, um, they laugh at us. when. <laughs> and it's also not fair to families. If you say the patient's going to be gone in 48 hours and they're not, that's mm-hmm. very fear-provoking yes. and tension-provoking. So that we try not to do that. We try and just to say, let's just worry about the moment. And are they comfortable? And what can we do to, to keep them comfortable? And, and look at it like that. Yes. Um, it, it's so, it, it, it is so interesting. I'm, I'm just continually coming back to that family, the family dynamic, um, people traveling, coming to see their parent. Those kinds of tensions have to come in. I mean, I'm, I, I'm taking a time off work. How do I, I have children. How do I manage? How do I manage taking care of, of this family member? And, and holding all of those um, life, I'm, I'm still living. How do, I, how do I do that? What kind of advice, how, how does that work as part of the team? How do you counsel someone with that kind of dilemma? Yeah, and that, then they feel guilty. Oh, my it, God, yeah. I haven't done enough. Yeah. It's, really, it's really hard. We present all the facts and how they are and to the best of our knowledge about how much time they may or may not have. We try and give them options of hiring people to help out, to set up family calendars so that the, um, the work doesn't fall just on one, say, sibling or one person. We, we gather friends together, churches and fraternal organizations, um, 
you know, sisterhoods and, and whatnot. We, we make groups wherever we can possibly do them. And our social worker is, is excellent at that part of it. She brings in community resources that are available. So we patchwork as much as we can, make up calendars of who's going to be here from 8 to 9. And Because people can't just all of a sudden pick up their jobs, although some people some do. Some can. Some sure. families just say, this is important to me, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping that someone will do this for me someday. I mean, let's face it, finances are in important part of this situation and different for different people. So uh, in New Jersey, where I came from, there were lots of possibilities. People had more money. There were lots of organizations where you could hire people to help take care of it. We don't have these options on the coast. We don't have nursing registries. So pretty much uh, families are where it's at. Um, we, mm-hmm. we try and help out the best we can. We put in aides. We put in hospice volunteers. The volunteers mm-hmm. I can't say enough about. They will provide respite so that family members can go take a walk, go in their kayak, and get away for a little bit. Um, so we that, do. That, let's, uh, by the way, once again, it is um, Healthy Options that you're listening to on WERU community radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and we're here with uh, our guest, Jill Colby, who's Director of Home Care Services at Waldo County Home Health and Hospice. We're discussing, well, the healthy options and what's being offered in hospice in Maine. And we're also looking at end-of-life issues overall and how to deal with grief in the face of losing a loved one as well, which we'll get into. How can people reach you, if or not you personally necessarily, or maybe personally, yeah. but how, how would get people get more information and find out if this is appropriate for someone that they're working with? Well, there's many ways. They can certainly call our office at 338-2268 and speak with any one of us there. They can just drop into our office at any time at 119 Northport Avenue. We're across the street from Waldo County, excuse me, Waldo County General Hospital. Um, They can look online, uh, wcgh.org is our website for our hospital, or they can just Google hospice. There's the Maine Hospice Council. There's hospice, um, United States, uh, the hospice, NHPCO, National Hospice Organization. There's many, many. If you just Google hospice, you will come across more information. You can go to the Medicare website and find out nuts and bolts. But to get a personal mm-hmm. idea of how we can help you, it's probably best to do a local one. You can ask your doctors. Your doctors all know of ways to get in touch with us. Uh, you can call hospice volunteers, and I don't have their number right now of Waldo County, but you could call our office and we can put you in touch. They're right in our, in our building. And we get many referrals from hospice volunteers. Mm-hmm. And, and that, the number, your number is 338-2268 again. Yeah. Right. And, and I do know that uh, those of you who are not in Waldo County, um, that there is the hospice volunteers of Hancock County, and they're at 667-2531, 667-2531. And as a volunteer, they, they are not doing the medical part, but they work with grief of a loved one and, and those kinds of, uh, of things as well. And you offer that as well and right. through they your organization. Right, they probably work with uh, the Hancock um, Home Health Agency. Oh, okay. Uh, and within Waldo County, there is another home care agency hospice too, also uh, called No Wall Inn. Oh, yes. And um, we all do very similar work. We're all, at least No Wall Inn and Waldo County are both not-for-profit hospices. Uh, but there are for-profit hospices that are beginning to come into the mm. picture. And actually, it's interesting, statistically, in the, in the 80s and 90s, it was almost 100% not-for-profit. 
the latest um, data that I've seen is that uh, it's almost half and half. For-profit hospices have grown at a, a rampant rate in the last 10 years, and not-for-profit hospices have remained pretty static, which is always an interesting statistic hmm. to me. Um, I yes. find it very curious why the for-profits have, have grown so, so much. I'm hmm. at odds with our, our uh, national hospice leader, national hospice and palliative care leader, uh, who believes that this is a good thing. I'm, I'm on the hmm. other side of it, and I'm not so sure. I think that when for-profits um, get into a, a system like this, I, I get very suspicious about why there's money in it. Because I know for our agency, and I know for No All In, um, we're, we barely scrape by. So what's being charged, we will have to uh, do an investigative report yes. about that. <laughs> How are people making money on the dying? Yeah, it may, mm-hmm. be, it may be a very um, innocuous reason. It may be that they are larger than we are. And when you're larger, you, can, you have a lot more patients who are requiring less care uh, than, as opposed to patients that are requiring more care. We certainly have no litmus test uh, for us. When, when a patient comes to us, where our first question is, do you need the care and when do you need it? Uh, the second is, what, how much is it going to cost us? And some patients cost us lots of money. Patients who are requiring pumps with intravenous medications, very expensive. Uh, they need lots and lots of medical care. Other patients who are dying use very little of our services. So Medicare Hospice pays us the same amount per patient. They give us a per day Mm-hmm. rate. So yes, you make some money on some patients and you lose on others. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe in a larger for-profit hospice, that works better. I don't, I don't, we really don't know. know. I just we don't, don't know. I just think it's something that I would like to have it's, more information it's on. It's definitely curious. And, and it's interesting. I don't know if, uh, if, if you've seen, there was an article, uh, Atwal Gawande, who writes a lot about medical. He's a medical doctor and he writes in The New Yorker, did write a whole article about um, healthcare actually in New Jersey. Um, a, a physician was getting involved in a, in a team approach, and they're finding that they're reducing the number of emergency room visits. And, and for instance, for one client, the big issue, as you mentioned in, in hospice, there was uh, that he was disabled and his elderly mother couldn't take care of him. And so they were not thriving because of where they were living. And when they were able to address his housing situation and that kind of care, he actually didn't need to go to the emergency room all the time and was getting good care. So it's almost like taking that hospice approach and putting it into the uh, medical idea of this is how we should be treating everybody. Let's look at the whole person. And that's the other thing that, that seems to be happening when you get to this, this area. You are dealing with the whole body, the whole person. Um, and that's something that sometimes gets forgotten as you're busy trying to fight a, a chronic condition or something like that. The idea that you're actually talking to the family, mm-hmm. the idea that those issues come up. You know, someone who can, as, as you said, making a decision to this is what's really important, it, it takes something to come to. It's sort of like an awakening. It's, it takes an acceptance that your family member really isn't going to be here much longer. This is it. I really do need to suspend my life for a moment and see and, and attend to this. We've, we forget um, because we are caught up in our, in our lives that, wait a minute, something just shifted. The big, the big picture shifted, and then there you are as, you know, a little injection of, mm-hmm. of, wait a minute, I'm here to tell you. I hear where you're at and here. These are the facts. And because of our team, we're not only able to do that, but we can inject 
hey, we're not just Western medicine. We're not just a doctor here. We're not just a nurse who's been studying Western medicine. I have to always remember it because I'm a nurse who specializes in pain management, meaning mostly medication. But pain management is so much more than that. Much of pain that people have is psychic pain. And psychic pain doesn't get treated by morphine. So as a team, there's always one of us to nudge the other one and say, have you tried aromatherapy for this patient? <laughs> have you tried acupuncture? Have you tried music right. or art therapy right. or massage or prayer on all the different non-medication modalities? As a matter of fact, within our own little agency right now, one of the Medicare requirements is that we're always doing quality Assurance. So we're looking at our program at a three, in a 360-degree area and saying, how can we improve? And when I do chart review, I'm missing, in my own agency, the documentation that our nurses and, and other team members are really addressing pain in a non-pharmaceutical method. I know that they are, but they're not documenting it, mm-hmm. and maybe not to the degree that we can really use it. So we're focusing on that in 2011, mm-hmm. that massage and other things. And, and that's really how I got to know you, too, because right. one of our hospice nurses said to me, you know, we've got a patient here who's got intractable nausea and vomiting, and we've tried all the medications. They're zonking her. She doesn't want to be zonked. What else can we do? And so we thought, let's try some acupuncture. Mm -hmm. So hospice is fabulous in that we don't ever say one method's better than another. We say, bring it all on in, and we'll see what will work. Mm -hmm. How does this work on the spiritual aspect? Are these chaplain? What what do you call a spiritual advisor? Because everyone comes from their own tradition. Yeah, in the Midcoast in Maine, we we call ours a spiritual care coordinator because that's really the spirit of Midcoast Maine, where people are not as... Um, religious in the in the traditional sense of the word, um, and they want just any kind of spiritual care. Um, in the hospice I came from in New Jersey, it was a very Catholic um, community, so we had a Catholic chaplain, who because that really that was more for her. In other mm-hmm. areas in New Jersey, we have even Jewish hospices where mm-hmm. the whole hospice is really oriented toward the Jewish culture and religion because they feel more comfortable in that method. But up here, our spirituality, and I think in most places, you shouldn't be neglected spiritually just because you're not Roman Catholic or you're not Jewish or you're right. not Baptist. Or you're not affiliated. You're not affiliated. Although mm-hmm. I have to tell you that some people do, in the end of life, do look back to their childhood roots and want that. Well, our spiritual care coordinator can do that. You know, she's got the credentials where she'll say, okay, I'm going to contact this Lutheran minister and right. see if I can get him in or her in. Mm-hmm. Um, but majority of the time, she's just there to to really reach out spiritually in any way mm-hmm. that that family or the patient wants. And it's very effective. And I spoke to you about psychic pain, and very often yes. that's where our spiritual care coordinator will come in. You know, we have people who, for whatever reason, maybe they felt that the pain that they're having now is because of a life they led, you know, for right or wrong. Guilt, yeah. And they need that person spiritually to be able to say, well, let's talk about it and and really see where that pain is coming from and see what we can do to, uh, to get rid of it before you die. Well, yeah, you know, now, just as you said that, I realized, yes, the, the sense of, as one knows the end is near, there, there, that, that sense of, of, it can be regrets. It mm-hmm. can be the, the, that, that the fear of, I didn't do it right. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're beginning to do a lot more with um, hospice in prisons in Maine. Mm. Um, 
Candace Powell, who's in charge of the Maine Hospice Council, has been absolutely the forefront cheerleader to get hospice into prisons. And there's still a lot of controversy about do prisoners deserve, you oh know, I hate to use that word, but that's actually what people will say, mm. do they deserve? Well, and know? under the most current political climate, they, they may not deserve anything, but we don't know. <laughs> no, sorry about that. I had to interject a, a little commentary. I apologize. <laughs> but uh, no, I don't apologize. No regrets. No regrets. Well, we, we feel in hospice that everyone is deserving of care. And, uh, yes. And you talk about families that, you know, are at different junctures. And it's true because sometimes we come into families that have, you know, a history that we're just not aware of. And maybe this man had beaten his wife for many years mm. and now she ends up being his caregiver. Oh my. And what um, maybe right. a subliminal opportunity this is for her to get back at him for all the mistreatment oh my. he gave her. So we have to be aware that this is a possibility. And we can say, you know, you can hate him all you want and you can think about it, mm. but you can't really do it. And this goes <laughs> both, both ways, by the sure. way. And then women, yeah, so children, the, adults. So we're kind wow. of the outside person that comes in and says, if you're not being cared for here properly, you know, we can get you into another care facility where you can be cared for properly. Oh, it's so complicated because, of course, there are everything isn't sugar and spice. No, no, this everything is isn't the loving the loving family <laughs> coming in from everywhere to embrace dad. That's right. And and right, so there's every level. So right, you are working on every every sociological, every cultural problem you're going to see we do. at end of we life. Do. And, and the stress wow. of dying can really bring out sometimes the best, but sometimes the worst. Right. I've been at houses already where there's been police protection outside to keep certain family members away. Oh, my. Uh, on the other hand, we've been, to po focus on the positive, we've been able to re reunite some families that have been estranged for years. And now they hear that someone is dying. And our social worker has been absolutely amazing being able to use resources such as the angel network or uh, uh, what is that that is um it's it's done through airlines that will use frequent flyer miles oh to yes fly people who wouldn't normally be able to afford to fly right um to to get them to get families reunited uh, we've written letters i've written personal letters to wardens to be able to get releases for people in jail uh, for a few days so that they can revisit a loved one before death. Mm. So miraculous things can happen when hospice gets their mind to it. And people, I think we use sometimes some of the fear of hospice. People are so glad that it's someone else on hospice and not them, that they're willing to really help you out. Um, <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Yeah. So much, really. Now, now we, the, the next show will have to be on the... Uh, uh, on how to prepare, how to live as if it's your last day, you know, <laughs> kind oh, of. Yeah. I think it, well, kind look of. at the movie, The Bucket Lists, you know, how people made bucket lists about what they were going to do before they die, and that's, right. a, uh, that's kind of a, a real... Uh, well, you know, um, I'm, I'm thinking of Stephen and Andrea Levine. If you read any of their work, they've done a lot of, uh, they're meditators and have done a lot of work on healing and into life and death, mm -hmm. and writ wrote a book um uh, called a year to live and they have done a lot of hospice work is um i guess they would be in the spiritual mm -hmm. realm 
And uh, I know Andrea has been a survivor of cancer for many years, so she has dealt with this also personally and in their practice. But the book, A Year to Live, um, they noticed when someone got the diagnosis or whatever that means, um, people would uh, start saying, well, screw this. I'm going to do this. I want to do this. I don't have much time. And so they started to do seminars, and they would start talking about it. And there's a book, uh, A Year to Live. And uh, the first thing they would do, I've, I've attended them, is have people write A lists and B lists. What would you miss if you were to die tomorrow? Mm-hmm. And then the B list is, what wouldn't you miss? And inevitably, not that they were checking people's lists, the A list would have maybe 10 things on it, maybe more for some other people, but the B list would have, you know, 50 things on it. So you get at before, or if you've just gotten a diagnosis, or when you don't have a diagnosis, about living, how do you live? If your B list is three times as long as your A list, what are you doing? And how, so how do you live your A list? In, in the sense of what would you miss? And that doesn't mean you're irresponsible. It doesn't mean you're forgetting all of your, the things you need to do, but how do you do what our obligations are as responsible human beings, how do we do that and still have a balance? And um, I think in a, in a way, the hospice situation while dealing with someone who is at end of life, but you're also touching the people who are still living and maybe there's a, a little bit of inoculation, a little mm-hmm. bit of, of, whoa, changing a, an idea of how the world looks. And we, we much, like, like, much like Stephen yeah. and Andrea can do with their A Year to Live book. Yeah. Unfortunately, what's happened with the hospice is that it used to be um, we got people on early, and we had time to do that. Right. But the length of stay in hospice has gone down, down, down. Oh. So now it's, sometimes it's only weeks. Uh-huh. So it's very difficult to fit all that work in, <laughs> you know, plus keep the patient comfortable and do the concrete things we need to do. Uh, so that, that's, been, um, that's been a sad part to watch that happen because you're right. If we can you know, make people's lives better, and, and you said the family too, and reorient. We jokingly always say in hospice, we always say eat dessert first. That's uh, right. But, but I really, have a bumper sticker that yes, says that. <laughs> realistically, that is something that you should think about. Why do we always, you know, our puritanical heritage, we're always putting off um, what's best, what we think is, you know, the best part of our lives. Well, you know, death happens while life is happening. So we, we really shouldn't put it off. None of us are promised a tomorrow. And we don't know. We all think we have this, you know, amount of time that goes on forever. So as we touch that and deal with end-of-life issues and loss and grief, that can be very terrifying if, you know, someone's driving down in their car now in the middle of the snowstorm. (laughs) Drive carefully going, you mean I'm going to (laughs) die? Yeah, right. (laughs) Oh, my God. You mean now? No, no, no. (laughs) Drive very carefully. Slow down. Whatever you're doing, keep your foot off the gas right now. (laughs) Let me mention one one of the best parts of the hospice benefit. doesn't help the patient so much at the time, but is the bereavement services. Bereavement is also a mandated part of the hospice uh, benefit. While we don't get paid for it, it's something that we need to do for at least a year after and more if needed. And that's where hospice volunteers in Waldo County really does their their shining best. Um, They are in charge of all of our patients and others who don't sign up for the hospice benefit but come to their knowledge of any any, uh, death and they will do bereavement services, support groups, individual counseling. 
Uh, I say it doesn't help the patient, but it really does in a way because when we are able to go into someone's house and say, we know you're dying, and their first, usually their first thing is, what's going to happen to my wife? What's mm-hmm. going to happen to my children? And we can say, we'll be there for you. We'll be there for them. And we are not going to forget them. And we'll see what needs to be done. That really releases a lot of stress out of their lives and they can die more peacefully knowing that someone else will be looking out for them. Mm -hmm. So I'm remembering uh, getting involved uh, with the hospice volunteers through some of those bereavement groups. So you do it about the death of a parent, the death of a child, sudden death, those those kinds of things. Any kind of death. Any kind. Children, family, pets. Yes, actually. (laughs) Absolutely. That's a big deal. They go into schools if a child or some some tragedy has happened in the school. That's right. They will work there. Mm -hmm. Um, Right now, we take care of patients in nursing facilities. And that staff actually becomes family to that patient. Some of these patients are there many, many, they call them residents in nursing facilities. Many times those residents have been there for years. So uh, our bereavement coordinator may go into the facility. Flick Shooter is the bereavement coordinator. Mm -hmm. She's wonderful. And she will go into the nursing facility and give support to the staff after a death or even before to to help them realize what's happening in hospice is the best thing for this resident rather than the worst thing. Right. And um, so how does a volunteer get trained? What you said that was mandated. What does that mean? Uh, Connie Boydowitz is the hospice volunteer coordinator. And you can call her through our number. I, I feel terrible. I don't have their number offhand. But um, 338-2268. Yes. And uh, they run, hospice volunteers runs volunteer training classes several times a year. And uh, the volunteer classes are, are very exciting. And they go through the entire hospice program. They actually go through a simulated self-death awareness. Mm. Uh, and that's always a very interesting part. Uh, at the end of the hospice training, these uh, people can then decide do they want to work directly with patients or maybe they're just interested in fundraising. Sometimes they just did it for themselves because they were interested in the hospice philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's many, many different ways that hospice volunteers can be utilized. Uh, we use the hospice volunteers at Waldo General Hospital to man the hospice beds at the hospital every night from 7 to 9. Oh. And so sometimes the, they'll sit with patients' families so the families can go home, take a shower, do whatever mm-hmm. they need to Have do. something to eat. Knowing that their loved one won't be alone. Mm-hmm. I also want to mention that Jody Walford Tucker is doing is the director of the Hospice Volunteers of Hancock County. And again, if you need to connect with someone um, on, in Hancock County, it's 667-2531, 667-2531. And uh, down in Waldo County, 338-2268 in Waldo County General Hospital, wcgh.org. Right. right, and you can find out more about that about that there. Um, We are, uh, again, uh, speaking with Jill uh, Colby, who's the Director of Home Care Services at Waldo County Home Health and Hospice. She's on the Board of Directors also of Hospice Volunteers of Waldo County. And we're uh, continuing our conversation about end-of-life issues and and grief and uh, our conversation about hospice. And I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is WERU. And, um, you know, I'm reminded of a story of... uh, 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 Actually, it's a secondhand story, and you know who tells this is uh, 
a, a practitioner named um, Sylvia Borstein who writes uh, books about, she's a, a Buddhist uh, teacher, and um, she talked about one of her students going into hospice as a volunteer and went into a room. Uh, it was a, an inpatient situation, really end of life, and there was a woman who was in her late 90s. And uh, he walked in. He must have been in his early 50s. And uh, they were chatting. And then she looked at him, and she's in her late 90s. And she looks at him and says, why me? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's so many ways to look at that story. Why me? Yeah. As a 95-year-old, well, 96-year-old, 97, why not? Uh, <laughs> but anybody, why not? It's just like, how do you answer? Well, because that's what happens. You know, what it, you know, but yeah. but even at ninety seven, wanting more and and or that sense of how do we become comfortable with, or, or, or do we ever do? Yeah. yeah. Well, we don't have all the answers. That's no, for sure. For sure. We're, we're good listeners, <laughs> and we try not to judge people. But right. But I love that story. Right. Though. Uh, I took care of a patient once, and I got called to the house, and it was kind of an emergency situation person had a pretty bad stroke and they said you know she was dying and I got to the house and there was a woman obviously in her 80s lying on her couch in Teaneck New Jersey uh -huh. as a matter of fact and uh, she was crying how could this have happened to mommy and I wasn't sure why she was saying that because I was sure she was the patient she was right. very frail looking right and when I got actually to speak with her mommy was upstairs mommy was 104 years old and Wow. She just never had anticipated that her mother would die. And so it was a very interesting conversation that, that I had with her. And her mother died rapidly within a, a day or so. And this woman had quite a difficult time uh, accepting the fact. Here she was the age of most of my other patients. But we're used to always looking for, forward to tomorrow. Uh, one of the jokes I usually even share with my hospice patients is when we're trying to find a food that sits well with them. Very often people don't eat as well when they're, they're dying, and they're not meant to, and some foods are harder to digest than others. So I'll say, well, how about some eggs? Eggs are usually a pretty easy dish. And, and then they'll say, well, well, yeah, but I can only have three eggs a week because of the cholesterol. That's great. And then most people hear the irony of it and start to laugh and say, I guess I can have as many eggs as I want now. <laughs> um, but, of course, you know it's a myth. Eggs and cholesterol, oh, but you know, so they've been living under a misconception. <laughs> Another regret: I didn't have more omelets you know, when I could have. But anyway, that yeah. But life, we're living, and this is. And this while is, you're living, you're planning for tomorrow, and it's never the right time. I mean, people say, if I could only have a few more months, then I could do this or that. But you know, it's never the right time because when that event happens. Then we look forward to the next, next event. event. That's how we, you know, it's, I love to live where there's a change of seasons because you're always looking toward the next season to do something that you didn't get a chance to do this season. <laughs> so it's kind of like, well, I won't clean out that closet because I'll do that in the winter. And okay. the winter comes, just, well, I'll do that in the spring. You know? <laughs> so it's, we're always looking forward. That's right, we are. And, and, and that's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. So um, we are running out of time here, and my guest is uh, Jill uh, Colby, the Director of Home Care Services in Waldo County Home Health and Hospice. We've been talking about end-of-life issues, what hospice can offer, and also, um, also ironically and not ironically, life issues about how to, how to maintain your looking forward and, and, and living fully while we're here. And um, if you're in a situation and you need uh, help or have a loved one who needs help, talk to your doctor uh, about referrals. Um, you can also 
call the, um, what's the number again? Call us directly at 338-2268. And if I just may also Please. add one thing that we didn't talk about oh. was that the hospice Medicare benefit also helps families a great deal financially in that we pick up all the costs of medications for symptom management, oh. any equipment that needs to be in the home and all the other services that we talked about. So very often, it is a financial help as well. Oh, which is my very goodness. important to people. So I wanted to make sure that yes. I got that out. Well, well I think we'll have to uh, have another conversation because <laughs> there's so much more to talk about. And once again, um, I want to thank my guest, uh, Jill Colby, and I'm Rhonda Feynman. I also want to say once again that there's the Hospice Volunteers of Hancock County at 667-2531. So there's lots of ways to connect if you need to. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. I enjoyed it.